delighted to be with you, delighted to be worshiping God this morning, uh, seeking his face, and just the thought that he is seeking us. He desires uh, that we find grace and healing and hope this morning. His intention is to make his heart known to us. So to be seeking Christ together, what an amazing thing. All right. I'm going to take a moment before we turn to God's word. I'm going to let us take a beat and gather ourselves, our scattered senses, and prepare our hearts. Gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are there and that you want to speak to us this morning. And so we want to clear away the debris, all the various thoughts and confusions and worries and planning that we're doing so that we can take a time to focus on what you might have to say to us this morning. Your word is good. It is beautiful. It's more valuable than gold. And so to receive it as the treasure that it is. Um, And Father God, I, I ask for your special help and assistance. At times you look at uh, passages that have been misused, misunderstood, or abused, and we need your special help to untangle the mess so that your word can be redeemed. And I ask for that help this morning. So would you give us ears to listen? Uh, Speak, Lord. Your servants now are listening. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Find ourselves continuing in a series that we've been in for a while now in the book of Colossians. And we're in a section of Colossians where um, Paul has been bringing all of what he's told us about the supremacy of Jesus and the gospel to bear on our relationships and our most important relationship. We find ourselves uh, hearing his instructions to uh, those who are married in the Christian community today. So we're in Colossians chapter 3, just two short verses for us this morning, verses 18 and 19. This is God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul has been taking all of our seasons of life and our most precious relationships, and he's been asking us to imagine what they would be like if Jesus was Lord if Jesus was at the center of it all. We talked about this passage a couple of weeks ago and said the lordship of Jesus is really its central point. Six times in six verses, the word Lord is used. 
Christ is trying to put himself at the very heart of our relationship. Christ at the center of the single experience. We talked about that last week. Christ at the center of marriage. Christ at the center of parenting. Christ, the center of our homes. And we've been saying that we're in a unique season where we're asking people, wherever they are, to assess their season of life, to assess their marriage, their relationships with their kid, their relationship with their church, their relationship with the, with the Lord, and to ask for prayer from the church about how the next steps that they can move forward, what they need help with. And we've received some of your prayer requests. I have asked every one of you to submit one. Uh, many of you have yet to do it. You totally have my permission to get on your phones right now and just submit that thing. It won't bother me at all. As we turn to marriage, I want to acknowledge that, like last week, and singleness is this broad category. So is marriage. You have all kinds of people when they hear they're going to hear a sermon about marriage. People who was like, I wish I wouldn't have come today. And folks like, I'm glad I came today. You have people who are married, divorced, widowed, remarried, those who desire marriage, just recognizing that we're all in this room and that God holds us. I also want to acknowledge that for some of us in this room, uh, especially women um, who may have been abused or taken advantage of by bad teachings of this text, from male authority figures inside or outside of the church who have harmed you or have made you feel diminished or less than or belittled, I just want to say that I'm sorry and that that is wrong and dark and demonic. And I want to say that this church is a place where I hope you can grow and be healed and made whole and flourish and step into the fullness of who you are as we figure out this Christian life together. My prayer this morning is that we'd be able to take these two verses and begin to untangle the mess to see the beautiful gem that lies at the center. We started a couple of weeks ago. We spent 50 minutes already doing some hard work trying to put this passage in its cultural context. We have some more work to do this morning. I think to see these verses rightly, we need to see them in three ways. We need to see them clothed with the character of Christ. We need to see them placed within the story of Christ. And we need to hear them within an accountable community. Clothing them with Christ. Seeing them in the story of Christ. Hearing them in an accountable community. So first, we need to clothe them in the character of Christ. I think one of the things that confronts us right away in a church like this, where you kind of go slow through a letter, sometimes verse by verse, sometimes just a couple of verses. When you read just verses 18 and 19, like we did, the first thing that confronts us is how short 
and terse everything is. Is this everything that Paul would want to tell us about marriage? Is this everything that he would want to say to a woman or to a man in a marriage? Uh, And the answer is no. In the same way that looking at the historical context can help us understand a passage like this, we always need to keep in mind the literary and spiritual context. And what I want to say is that there are 17 verses in chapter 3 that precede this one that really matter to our understanding of it, that are actually prerequisites for the commands here. We need to remember that this was a letter. Almost certainly, there would have never been a moment in those early house churches where just verses 18 and 19 would be read. There weren't verses. It was just a letter itself. And so those, these commands would have been heard within the context of all the 17 commands, words, verses that preceded it. And so we might, another way to think about this point is that married love depends upon neighbor love. You get, if you're supposed to love your neighbor in a certain way, how much more your spouse? If you're supposed to love your, your enemy in a certain way, how much more are you supposed to love your spouse when they are your enemy? So let's just go back to the beginning of the chapter to get some helpful context. First, Paul tells us to set our mind on things above. He's telling us to upload everything that we know about the gospel about who we are in Christ and the hope we have in him. And then he tells us, in light of that, we need to tear certain things down. And he says, you need to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death sexual immorality. The Romans lived in a world of profound sexual promiscuity and misuse, particularly in the Roman home. While women were expected to be chaste, the men were expected to have sex not only with their wives, but with mistresses, with their servants. Sexual misuse and abuse were rampant problems in the Roman home. So this is the context in which Paul is saying, put to death, therefore, sexual immorality, evil desires, this abuse and idolatry. And so before we even get to verse 18, Paul is saying, Sexual sin, sexual misuse, sexual abuse, forcing someone, demanding sex, sexual addictions. These things have no place in the human heart. They have no place in the Christian home. He goes on. He said, you need to tear that down. And then he says, you need to put off anger. Anger. 
wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. So here he's talking about speech. How we can use speech to abuse and belittle and manipulate one another through lies. Just tearing one another down with our words, name calling, just lying and manipulation. All of these misuses of our words, he says, this is, this is right out, tear it down. These practices have no place in those who are being renewed in the image of their creator, he says. They certainly have no place in the Christian marriage or the Christian home. Then he says, tear down cultural barriers that separate people and create prejudice. He says, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying, tear down those biases in your culture, whether they be economic, associated with gender, ethnicity, whatever it may be, whatever garbage there is in your culture that may make you feel superior to another human being, you need to take all of that out and replace it with what is true. Christ is all and in all. So before he, he talks about marriage, he talks about tearing all of these things down. And then he talks about building certain things up putting certain things on. He talks about the character of Christ himself. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything or everyone together in perfect harmony. That passage, more than any other passage, uh, has been the one that I have read at weddings and that couples have chosen to be read at their wedding. And I think that's right. Paul can't imagine a marriage in which Compassion isn't present, whether where kindness and, and patience and bearing with one another's faults isn't what you're aiming at. If these are the clothes that we're supposed to don with our neighbor, how much more so our spouse? He talks about the peace of Christ umpiring in our hearts, that when it comes to disruptions in relationships, we're to let the Prince of Peace be our guide as we reconcile. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, replacing those harsh words of manipulation and pain with lovely words, sprinkled with the truth of the gospel, with Christ himself, filling the Christian home with hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And then he ends the whole thing by saying, and whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to 
God the Father through him. And then he says, wives, submit to your husband. That is fitting in the Lord. Husband, love your wife and do not be harsh with It's just different when you hear it with what precedes it. Paul didn't have a lot to say because he'd said so much already. And he imagines a Christian home in which sex is never misused. Words of anger and manipulation are kept in check. Cultural baggage about gender is discarded. The humility of Christ is experienced. Forgiveness is freely offered. Resentments aren't being allowed the chance to grow. And where everything is done to the glory of God in thanksgiving. Any understanding of verses 18 and 19 that contradicts anything before is right out. Wrong-headed. Married love depends upon neighbor love. When people come into my office, which happens a lot with problems in their marriage, it rarely, if ever, has to do with their interpretation of verses 18 and 19. It almost always has to do with what they're missing in the first 17 verses before that. And so for married couples... In our midst, I think the first question is, is there something here that needs to be torn down that you haven't taken down yet? Sexual misuse? Angry words? Cultural baggage and bias? Is there something you need to work on putting on? The character of Christ. Good words, (laughs) free forgiveness, conversations between husbands and wives about, do we need to tear any of this stuff down? What do we need to build up? You first have to see the verses clothed in the character of Christ. The next thing you have to do is you need to see them within the story of Christ. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think what's implicit in Colossians is made explicit in Ephesians chapter 5. And I think most of you will know that those two letters were written around the same time and they're very, very similar. And the section that reflects where we are in Colossians and Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 5. And they're very similarly. He gives directions to wives and then he gives directions to husbands. But he very helpfully adds something at the end of that passage. He says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying everything that I've talked about is a mystery, and I'm giving you the interpretive key to it here, to all of these various instructions. And the interpretive key is to understand marriage as a display case for divine love. As something you can look into and see the very dynamics of the cross 
at work in human relationship. What he's saying to the Roman church and what he's saying to us is, I have good news for you, friends. Marriage isn't about you. Marriage isn't ultimately about companionship. It's not ultimately about romance. It's not ultimately about your comfort. Marriage is ultimately about Christ and about his love, his commitment. He's saying your marriage is a signpost pointing beyond yourself to a greater reality. And that greater reality is that the bridegroom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's already come to the altar to meet his bride. And there he laid himself out. And he said, with all that I am and with all that I have, I bind myself to you in covenant. Never to leave you. Never to forsake you. Never to let you go. And nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from my love. And how does the bride respond? She responds with gratitude and thanksgiving and joy and song, serving the one who first served her by sacrificially giving up his life for her. And he's saying this covenant relationship is meant to imperfectly, but really embody that. He's saying that marriage is like a great play in which each of you has been cast a leading role and the script is the gospel and the role is Christ, go. Or you could think about it like this. Marriage as a grand piece of music that we're called to make and Christ has given you the key and the main themes and now you get to create a new verse or new movement in this great song making it your own, but in a way that deeply harmonizes with the gospel story. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. A word like submit makes us squirm in our largely egalitarian society. Maybe understandably so. But I would argue that this has more to do with the historic abuses of the scriptures rather than what the Bible actually says. Notice that this is fitting in the Lord. And Scott McKnight will talk about the word fitting here, talking about something that is in the manner of or appropriate to. Talked about this a couple weeks ago, that if you put Christ's life, the shape of it, up next to your life and the shape of it, that it would fit. It would be a match. There would be similarities. A life patterned off of Christ's own humility, submission, and sacrificial love. What Paul is saying is that if you've been united to Christ, if you've experienced and benefited from his love, if you recognize that he's emptied himself for you, He's now calling you to follow him. Let his love animate you in this role. Let it shape the way you live it out. Let it shape the way you express yourself towards your husband. Let it shape the way you understand what you're doing in your Roman culture. Let it lead you to a life that is cruciform or cross-shaped in its purpose. But Jesus is the model. 
And all of this subverts this twisted view of subordination in the ancient context. Jesus is the model. Was Jesus weak? Do we dominate or boss Jesus around because he submitted to us? It subverts meaning even as it invests new meaning, or better yet, redeems and reclaims a good word. In the Bible, submission isn't a bad word. It is something that each one of us is called to. In Ephesians chapter 5, right before the household codes, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he says this is actually what it means to have the mind of Christ. Which means that submission is universal. It's a universal call. And if it's universal, that means there's no one-size-fits-all model. It's going to look different for everybody. In fact, it's going to look as diverse and as beautiful and as different as the many diverse, beautiful, and different marriages represented in our community and within Christ's church. I just want to speak for a moment about my wife. Because my wife, in some ways, I think she breaks the stereotype and the mold. And she is so faithful to this text. My wife is the president of a well-respected nonprofit with a global footprint. And she has that position because she is an intellectual and moral powerhouse. I have never made more money than my wife, and I likely never will. She is smarter than me, and she is better with power tools. I have never beat her in a distance foot race. And yet, she goes so low to serve me and our family. She makes me feel strong, handsome, and wise. And I long to be those things more and more for her as a result. She works so hard to respect and honor me. And I feel those things deeply. And as a result, I go into the world in strength. All of this, I'm sure, feels very cross-like to her because of how big of a doofus I am. But she does not point out my faults. She never nags me. She never tears me down. She builds me up. And so for the wives in this room, there is a way that you voluntarily submit yourselves to your husbands that is ultimately about your self-submission to Christ and your desire to reflect Him, and for your life and your marriage to be a display case for His glory and His love. And that way is not dictated by your husband, and it's not dictated by bad church culture. It is dictated by the shape of Jesus' life. 
And it takes full account of your equality as an image bearer. And it is rooted in a new way of being human made possible at the cross. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then it says, husbands, love your wives. Now that doesn't seem shocking to us now. It would have. The expectation is that it would say, husbands, lead your wives. Husbands, govern your home. Love was not expected. Love wasn't what marriage was about. Marriage in the Roman world was about expediency. It was about honor. It was about having children that could carry on your name. A person could get married and divorced many times. It was as easy as saying so, at least for men, who actually there was advantages socially for doing that. It says, so I just imagine being in like the Roman locker room and someone's talking about their marriage and them say, what's your marriage about? And you get to the Christian guy and he says, love. I promise you that is not what anyone else said in that whole locker room. And maybe you're in locker rooms now and people talk about their marriages and you get to the Christian guy and he's supposed to say, love. And not love like at a, on a Hallmark card. This is, the, this is agape. That's the word. It is the love that is shaped off of Jesus' love for the church. And so the whole idea in Husbands Love Your Life is a man should give up his own rights and his own life as a husband and father laying down his own interest to pursue the best interest of his woman, of his children, lifting them up, laying down his life for them in a life that is cruciform or Christ-shaped. A life of daily dying, actually decentering yourself and your own needs so that others can feel protected, served, cared for, loved, A radical call in the Roman world, in the Roman locker room. A radical call today at the YMCA or wherever you work out. An imitation of Christ who gave up his privilege and made himself nothing to come here and serve us. What's Paul doing? He's refusing to allow marriages within the church to look like Rome. They don't look like Rome. They don't look like 1950s America. They don't look like 2023 America. They don't look like Hispanic culture. They don't look like Indian culture. They don't look like any earthly culture. They're supposed to take on the culture of heaven and the ethic of Christ, and to be portraits of the gospel. Husbands no longer have wives as a means of power to continue their lineage. Instead, they love as Christ loved. And the wife lives in submission as a spiritual act of worship to God to image the coming kingdom 
and to display this reality for the husband as he lives in submission to Jesus as well. A wife actually leads her husband by imaging submission so that he learns to follow Christ more fully. A husband actually leads his wife by loving her, consistently pointing to the love of Christ so that she can follow him without hindrance. And the outside world, when it's working good, gets a gander and a peek at an imperfect but embodied vision of divine love. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So you preach this text and you say all this stuff. You can spend 50 minutes one day and you can spend 20 minutes today and still what is in people's mind is, yeah, but who's the boss? Really, I know you said all this stuff, but really, who's the boss? Or it's a litmus test. Is he, is he complementarian? Is he egalitarian? What kind of sermon am I listening to here? Ah, yes. Our culture is wrestling with what it means to be male and female, struggling with what marriage is and is for, confused about issues of power and mutuality. And when we come to the text, we ask, who's the boss? I want to say that Paul's a couple steps beyond us, and he's asking us to ask this question, where's the cross? Maybe these conversations about abstract gender roles are needed. But what I want to say is that they can never shortcut the difficult, sacred work of dying to ourselves for the sake of loving another, which is the call for men and women alike in any Christian marriage. I know amazing complementarian marriages. I'm in one. I know amazing egalitarian marriages that reflect Christ. I know brutal complementarian marriages that are terrible. There's the same on the egalitarian side too. Here's the thing. The watching world doesn't need Christians squabbling with one another about abstract gender roles. What people will find compelling about Christian marriage in the church is when they see husbands and wives submitting to one another in every way that they can struggling in dark places of pain in their marriage to speak truthfully about their own sin and need, struggling through hard times together, egalitarian or complementarian, as terms or as rallying cries only help to the extent in which they serve the cross. And so you clothe these things with the character of Christ. You see them within the story of Christ. And finally, you hear finally, you hear them in an accountable community. It's just that there's one line we haven't talked about in the passage yet. And do not be harsh. There's a whole world of pain and hurt wrapped up in that line for some people. Harsh words. Harsh action, emotional abuse, physical abuse. And if statistics are true, that is happening in this room. 
and in the church. And notice that the harshness isn't just with her. It's with the children. It goes on to say, fathers, do not provoke your children. There's something about men getting harsh in the home. Anger. Physical force. It's not the only way that men abuse power, but it was certainly true in the Roman church. It is certainly true in our community. And so he's saying, just explicitly, he doesn't care about making you feel good. He doesn't care about being sentimental. He just says, do not be harsh. And he's saying something to women. He's saying, wives will not submit to domineering monsters, but to men who humble themselves, who do not use their power for their own advantage, but those who empty themselves for the sake of sex, self-sacrificial love. Wherever you find men being harsh with women, you are not seeing the kingdom of God. You are seeing evil done against it. And then he says to husbands, I mean, this is just directed to them. Stop. In the name of Jesus, you must stop. You never have permission to be harsh or abusive with your spouse. You can never fix your lips to demand submission from your bride, period. Because to do so would be to to appeal to a dead and demonic system and to your own twisted view of power and leadership. Which is, of course, exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And what I want to say is that this was a letter written to a community of people where men, women, and children were all hearing it together. And so women and children and everyone else in the community now heard the command of Paul, do not be harsh. And now the men in the room are like, is it okay to read this out loud? This seems dangerous. I'm a little exposed. Now there's accountability for my actions if I was harsh. It's kind of like the therapist or the doctor. You're in there with your your child, and and they ask right in front of you, is everything okay at home? Are you feeling safe at home? And 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 if the child doesn't answer, you may say, well, I'll ask your parents to step out. And at that point, you're like, Oh, I don't, what, to have your, but to have these words spoken in our community, the children are defended. My wife is defended. I'm I'm not just accountable to them or to God, though I am, I'm accountable to you in my community and how I relate to them is on display to you and how you relate is on display to me. And together we receive it, and we're grateful for the accountability it provides. To understand the text, you need to see it clothed in Christ. You need to fit it within the story of Jesus. You need to hear it within an accountable community. And then you begin to untangle the mess, and you can see something of the gem and the beauty of what's there. 
Let me close by saying this. Marriage can be hard. No one has hurt me more in life than my wife. No one has hurt her more deeply than me. Nothing has exposed my need of Christ more than my marriage. I have discovered how difficult I am to live with. I have discovered how difficult she can be to live with. But along the way, we have also learned the tragic, comic, lovely, stumbling, and deeply joyful dance of living together anyway under the Lordship of Christ as He calls us to clothe ourselves in His character. As He asks us to imagine our marriage as serving the gospel even as we serve one another. Even as we submit our marriage to the scrutiny of the Scriptures and the accountability of our community. All the while being held in the love of Christ who looks at his bride and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never let you go. I bind myself to you in covenant and nothing in all creation can separate you from my love. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your word this morning. And uh, yeah, I just pray for the marriages in the room. I pray for everyone who's heard this. And I pray that that you may take the very character of your heart and clothe the words and cover them. I pray that you would take our imaginations and expand them for what marriage can be and is intended to be. I pray that you would give us the courage with scrutiny to look at our relationships and the relationships around us and to hold them up to the refining fire of the gospel and to put ourselves in loving and accountable relationships. And as we do that, I pray that marriages would flourish. So I pray for conversation uh, throughout our community, men looking at women and saying, how am I doing? What do I need to tear down? (laughs) How can I build you up? Women looking at men and saying, how do I tear you down? How can I build you up? What do we need to tear down? What do we need help with? What do we need to seek the help of the community with in our marriage? How can we ask the elders for prayer for us? And I pray that as we pray and as we seek, that you would bless. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.